All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm speaking to you from New York City on this, the seventh day of January 2020. And as this is the first broadcast in 2020, let me wish all of you a joyful, prosperous, and happy new year. Before I talk more about today's show, I always like to remind you that I write a newsletter called J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. You can subscribe to that by going to miningstocks.com. And uh, we like to put in a little plug for Chen Lin's letter, What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? It's chenpicks.com to sign up for Chen's letter. And Michael Oliver, who we'll be talking to in just a minute or two, it's olivermsa.com, olivermsa.com for his very uh, prescient views on the markets, as you will see, and we'll be talking to him, realizing how well out ahead he is of uh, most of his technical analyst peers. Well, we do want to thank you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows on the Voice America Business Channel. We also want to encourage you to continue sending along whatever comments you have. Send them to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors because without them, we would have no show. Our sponsors for today's show, we have two new ones, actually, Lion One Metals. And I'll be talking to an officer with Lion One Metals as well as Quentin Henning in just a, Quentin Henning in just a few minutes. I uh, also want to welcome Sitka Gold Corp., which is uh, a new sponsor to this show as well. And we'll be talking to them next week. Uh, an exciting new story. And, and you, you should realize that the companies that are sponsors of this show have first been added to my newsletter. I want to have sponsors on this show that I'm confident in and bullish on their prospects as well. And that uh, and that is certainly true of all the sponsors that we have. In addition to Lion One Metals and Sitka Gold, existing sponsors are Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Great Bear Resources, Scaffling Exploration, and TriStar Gold Resources. This week's guests are Alistair McLeod, Michael Oliver, Dr. Quentin Henning, and for the first time, Amish Gregg. He is of, of Lion One Medals. Alistair wrote in his December 26th essay titled Bond Worries and Gold that, and I quote, Treasury bond yields may continue to rise, exposing the debt trap the U.S. government finds itself in. Market participants don't realize it yet, but the global monetary system is spinning out of control. This will become obvious as the crisis stage of the credit cycle now upon us becomes evident, end of quote. Well, Alistair believes that the outlook for monetary inflation is dire. Indeed, it was recently reported that 90% of all U.S. Treasury borrowings since September had to be funded by the Federal Reserve in order to avoid market crash-inducing interest rate increases. 
So it's hard to think of a more worrisome but still bullish picture for gold as measured in U.S. dollars. And I will be asking Alistair to help us understand how the dynamics of our current global debt problem is leading to debt problems and a financing uh, insolvency for our government um, and how that might affect other markets. The fact that gold is honest money that holds its value over long periods of time, while every fiat currency ever created has been thrown into the dustbin of human history, that's the reason that I am a gold bug. And as a gold bug, I'm naturally interested in companies that discover the yellow metal and can make a profit from mining it. Uh, So I have written about a number of these companies in the past, uh, and I'm very, very pleased to have with me uh, today uh, to talk to uh, to Dr. Quentin Henning, uh, who really alerted me to the Lion One story, and that's when I added it just recently to my newsletter and made sure that I picked up some shares as well. So we'll be talking to Quentin Henning and Amish uh, after the first commercial break, but right now I'm really pleased to tell you that uh, Michael Oliver is back with us. Thanks for joining me again, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's really good to be back, and it seems like this is a year uh, that may be um, quite quite exciting for those that are ready for it and uh, perhaps quite disturbing for those who are not. Uh, you've been talking last month or so, maybe longer than that, um, about two very quiet markets, namely the dollar index market and the commodity market as measured by the Bloomberg Commodity Index. Uh, And you suggested that those two markets are very close to a major turn of great significance, even though they've been kind of slumbering, sleeping, and not many people too concerned about them. Where do those markets stand right now, the commodity market and the uh, dollar market? Uh, Do you see them uh, making some major changes this year, some major changes in direction? Absolutely. Uh, They did it December. The Mm -hmm. December close broke below on the dollar index our long-term momentum support structure that the Mm -hmm. dollar index had used all during 2019. The number adjusted each quarter. So the lows in 2019 aren't the same on a price chart, but on the momentum chart, they were all at the same level on the oscillator. (coughs) That came out with the December close decisively. and therefore, we argue that the dollar is now shifted into downtrend. Now, it's it's not making any headlines at this point, but uh, it's uh, it's likely to make headlines soon. Meanwhile, at the same time, the Bloomberg Commodity Index broke out upside. Again, also a very quiet market. It's been quiet since 2016. And uh, so nobody's paying attention to these two beasts, but they're big markets and they're major. Now, we think also their their new trend direction will put wind in the sale of gold, which didn't need their help over the last uh, year or two, but now has the assistance of those two markets uh, to fuel its fire. Um, I caution everybody that the events that just occurred that sparked uh, action out of oil, uh, a dollar or so rally, it had already come up nicely uh, recently anyway, but also caused gold to shoot up $40 the other night. Uh, in the electronic market, uh, up to 1590. Right now we're trading in the 1570s. But uh, when news events like that occur, quite often it creates confusion, expectations, sometimes false moves. In the case of gold, I don't think it's a false move. It just a little got a little ahead of itself um, based on that news. And naturally there were sellers up there, uh, $1590, $40 up on the day. And it backed off $20, $30, and now it's firming back up again. 
so uh, don't don't be disturbed by the pullback. Uh, it was you know an emotional moment, uh, but in the direction that gold was already headed. Now, had gold been in a bear trend, which it's not, it's technically in a bull trend, uh, such a rally should have been sold into. But in this case, uh, the rally was legit. It just got a little too hot too quickly. Now, what I really like uh, I'm seeing out there now is the stock market, uh, because I think that's the next player as far as asset class movement that will help generate more upside in the gold market. Uh, the stock market is saying, be- beating its chest, saying, ah, we don't care about that news. We're in good shape. And so, again, the sentiment level of the bulls, the forever longs, in the stock market has to be at about maximum because they had this event and yet the market did not go down. So they think they're invulnerable. It's our view that probably the S&P is making a top right about now. I'm guessing, and this again, we haven't broken our numbers, but uh, we have some specific layered numbers below the market that will indicate that, in fact, it is rolling over. Um, but I suspect it's going to make its high, either made its high last week above 32.50 on the S&P, or might make a new high this week, but watch it very carefully because I think if you roll over from these levels, there's a good chance you're making the top. And there's a lot of trigger numbers below the market that are not that far below that will do a lot of technical damage. It's not necessarily apparent on price charts, but it's apparent on momentum charts. Uh, And if we upset that market, uh, what will be the response of the central bank? Well, we know what the response will be. More of the same, except even more. Uh, we even have a president who wants to print, print, print. So <laughs> combine that with the ECB, the Fed, and the BOJ, uh, and you've got nothing but uh, pro-printers out there. So that's going to help what? I don't think it's going to help the stock market. It'll flow, uh, it'll create a river of liquidity, but the river of liquidity this time will go into the gold market, is our argument. So, Michael, the, the issue here then is if money starts to flow out of the equity market, I suppose it also really goes into the treasury market. But at what point in time, I mean, we're going to be talking to Alistair McLeod in the second half of this show today, mm-hmm. and he's really concerned that we're going to start to see rising interest rates I, I no matter what that. the Fed does, yeah. no matter what the Fed does. I think does. the only threat of being short of the bond market or expecting higher yields is that at moments when the S&P has sharp declines, mm-hmm. you know, many crashes or a crash type event, you will have the natural panic uh, uh, investors rushing in to buy T-bonds. Mm-hmm. And so you'll have an upside spike or a drop in yields. But the damage that has already been done to the bond markets, I'm talking the Japanese, the German, and the U.S. government bond markets over the last few months, mm-hmm. argues to us that we are probably in transition toward higher yields, mm-hmm. with the caveat that if you ever get a moment of, of a dark uh, moment in the stock market, especially its emotional one, uh, you will have a rush back into T-bonds, but it will be a flare rally in the T-bonds, not a trend-changing rally. I mm-hmm. think the bonds are, have a problem. Yields are going up. And yeah. uh, that will leave one asset category out there, basically. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Gold. Gold and yeah. the monetary metals, uh, probably and silver, too. Metals. Yeah, right. absolutely. And, and maybe to a lesser degree, copper and some of the other metals. I mean, you're seeing a bull market over entirely over the com- uh, commodity uh-huh. markets, right? That's what you're well, seeing if, now. If, if you're a smart investor and you look at the, just look at the charts, uh, you've, had, you've had the commodities beat off the page as of 2016. They uh-huh. haven't gone down since then. They've gone sideways 
Bloomberg Commodity yeah. Index. So they're not a bear. Yeah. They're a sideways yeah. market. In our view now, they're up. Uh, but if you're a value investor and you want out of the stuff that is a bubble, you look over at the commodity category and you see no potential probably for downside risk. The issue is, are they ready for upside? And we argue mm-hmm. they are. All right. So I think smart money is making the move already. All right. Well, it certainly is shaping up for a fascinating year if you're, uh, if you're long on, on commodities and gold, that's for sure. Thank you very much for being with us. Michael, we have to leave it go with that. We have to go to break, but uh, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll do it again sometime soon. Thank you so much. All right, folks, we do have to go to break. Don't go away, though, because Quentin Henning and Amish Craig, uh, he's the vice president of Lion One, will be with us to talk about that company's really exciting story in the Fiji Islands, uh, exploration, gold exploration story. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Henning and Amish Craig. Noble Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. Gatling Exploration is aggressively expanding its 100% owned Larder Gold Project with three high-grade gold deposits located along the prolific Kirkland Larder Break in Ontario, Canada. 35,000 meters of drilling is underway and to date has now connected two of the three gold deposits and is aiming at connecting the third to create a 4.5 kilometer trend. Gatling trades under GTR on the TSX Venture and GATGF on the OTCQX. Visit www.gatlingexploration.com to learn more. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me for the first time Amish Greg, uh, as well as Dr. Quentin Henning, who's been with us many times in the past. Uh, but this time, he's not going to talk about Novo Resources or Irving, who two companies he's spoken about in the past, but he's going to uh, help us understand a little bit more about Lion One and this fascinating gold exploration development project in the Fiji Islands. Lion One is a new sponsor to this show and a company that I have personally purchased shares in and have added it to my newsletter after I learned about this exciting exploration project taking place uh, in in that part of the world. Uh, The company, I think it's pronounced Tuvatu, a project in the Fiji Islands is certainly one I think you're going to want to keep your eyes on if uh, if you are an investor in this sector. Uh, before I say hello to Hamish and, and Quinton, uh, just should tell you the Lion One trades in Canada under the symbol LIO 
You can buy it down here in the States, as I have, under the symbol LOMLF. 117.5 million shares out, or something about that uh, number anyway. Uh, earlier today, trading in U.S. money at $1.32, giving it a market cap for around $155 million. Well, thanks, both of you, for joining me today, Hamish and, and Quentin. Um, I'd like, thanks, like to start... I'd like to start out first uh, with you, Amish. Uh, to the, this is your first time on the show, and um, you, you are sitting in for Walter Burkhoff, um, who who is the CEO and chairman of Lion One. It was his his vision, but you've been with him, I think, for something like ten years. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And you know, Wally's got a uh, he, he's got a knack for putting together really interesting mining assets. He's done he's done it a few times before. And uh, we could count this as maybe the fourth venture that has gone forth into the public markets. The ones prior to this, uh, Northern Orion, Miramar, and La Mancha, which mm-hmm. um, an aggreg- had an aggregate acquisition uh, price of about $3, million, $3 billion. So he's averaging about a billion dollars per takeout in his, in his uh, history up to date. Yes, he's had a very, a very colorful, a very successful history, which, of course, is is where we like to start with people who are successful. That's for sure. Uh, can you give our listeners a, a little bit more of a history of Lion One? It's located in the Fiji Islands, as I said. Uh, this project is a two for two project. Uh, what what was it that uh, Wally saw there that attracted him? I mean, obviously, there's some other major projects in the area, but. Uh, what just give us fill us in with what he accomplished to date in terms of uh, land acquisition and and the progress on the project. Well, yeah, the you know Fiji you mentioned it, it's a it's a uh, it's a mining jurisdiction uh, not on everybody's radar, but the fact is it's got one of the oldest and biggest gold mines um, in the South Pacific. The 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 Emperor Mine or Vatikula has been in operations for over 80 years and if that was discovered today that would be a uh, that would be considered a major discovery they've produced over 7 million ounces there and uh, it, there's no indications that that system is uh, constrained in any way they're still mining it at 1200 meters depth mm-hmm. and in fact it's what uh, brought Walter to Fiji was the chance to own Vatikula and all of its assets so this is about 10 years ago and in the development pipeline of the of the Emperor Mining Company was a deposit about 40 miles away from from this giant deposit of Vatikula called Tuvatu, mm-hmm. and it had a feasibility study already done on it. This is at a time when uh, Ivanhoe was Emperor's largest shareholder, so mm-hmm. it um, it was available. And um, long story short, Walter uh, purchased the assets of Emperor, but turned around and sold the operating mine, but kept Tuvatu. Uh, because of the upside and because he looked at it as another chance to start a Vatikula-sized project uh, with, without 80 years of, uh, of history behind it, a chance to, to build something new. So the last 10 years, the major things that have happened is, is to have uh, got all the permitting finished. It's, it's, it's uh, fully permitted for production. And most significantly this year, we consolidated the land position around the existing resource, which is something that no other company's ever done before, which gives us uh, not only the Tuvatu resource, which is only a small piece of the overall Navalawa gold system, but an opportunity to explore that area and develop it on a regional basis. And so that's the exciting part is that for the first time, this is, this is the first time this project has ever been on a district scale explored for the first time and there's been some notable people notable companies through there in the past so i'd say that's our, our, our chief uh, accomplishment to date no oh. and just uh, perhaps for those who aren't familiar with the story 
what is your resource and what sort of grades? And, and you did an economic study. Could you give us a quick overview of, of those metrics? Yeah, well, the uh, relevance of, of the previous study is that it was done at $1,200 gold. There was a 52% IRR on the uh, resource. So the, 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 mine, the, the part that was uh, identified for mining, they uh, looked at about, a, uh, about uh, 350,000 ounces uh, to be produced over the first six years with grades around 11 grams. But that was only talking about the Tuvatu resource, which is a small sliver of this overall system. Mm-hmm. And that uh, only incorporates resources to about, I don't know, probably max depth of 350 meters, somewhere around that. So it's a very small mm-hmm. channel of the project that's been drilled to the point where it could be included in a resource estimate. And so now we've got over seven kilometers of strike to, to, to put together into our exploration uh, program, and that's the most exciting part. So uh, it showed positive economics of $1,200 gold, um, but there's no indication, like Vatacula, that the system is is constrained at depth below the existing resource or laterally across seven kilometers or five miles of the uh, of the surrounding caldera. Wow, amazing, uh, amazing uh, scale! I would say. I uh, before we get to Quentin, I want to ask him about the the geological prospects here that he sees and and one of the reasons he got involved with the company. But you know, you noted that you have permits to go into production. Is this something that you envision this company doing, or will you be exploring aggressively, or both? Well, both. It's, it's a bit of a dual-track strategy, and one of the things we've got is a government that is very pro-mining. The Jurisdictionally, this is, a, you know, this is part of the old uh, British Empire, but uh, Fiji has been um, pro-mining for many years, continues to be pro-mining, um, and so they have, are actually encouraging us to advance towards production. That's the general expectation. So it's, it's a bit different than a lot of other places where uh, this government actually is promoting foreign investment and they see mining as a cornerstone of their, of, of the, uh, their growing economy. Yeah, it's a, all right. Let's, let's turn to Quentin. Uh, Quentin, how long have you been aware of this, uh, this prospect, the, the, the potential for this project? Yeah. I know that you're, You've been um, scouring the globe for for gold mining opportunities, and in many many years, you worked with Newmont in the past. But uh, what? How long have you known of it, and what has attracted you to this uh, Tuvatu project? Yeah, let's let's uh, put it this way: uh, Tuvatu was on my short list. Um, you know, I'll give you a little history. I, I've been following the company really since they started. You know, they kind of hived this off and started the company about uh, roughly 10 years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, I've been watching them, you know, step by step because the geology of this particular project in, intrigues me. I grew up in Colorado. Uh, here in Colorado, we have a couple of very big alkaline gold camps. Mm-hmm. One just next to my house here. It's not too far away. And then Cripple Creek, which is in southern Colorado, you know, is a 29 million ounce system. It's still producing. Newmont operates there. Um, these alkaline systems, man, they're big. Uh, you know, anybody that knows me knows I like them. I drilled spring pole for Gold Canyon. We readily hit 5 million ounce resource there. You know, and I, I look at these as, uh, they're, they're scarce as hand teeth, okay? They're very unusual systems, but once you find them, uh, they tend to, tend to deliver. They tend to produce. So, uh, put it in perspective, um, there's a, like I said, a handful of these things around the planet. There's Cripple Creek here in Colorado. There's the Porger deposit in New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Again, plus 20 million ounce. Uh, let's see, there's 
you know, in, in the neighborhood of Tuvatu or Fiji, there's also, um, you know, the Newcrest Mine on Lahir Island, which is a very, very young, in fact, it's still forming alkaline gold system. Uh, you know, but all of these things are, are plus 10 million ounces. Even the, the nearby Vaticola mine, it has a resource in, you know, mined and, you know, reserves of over 10 million ounces. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you find these things, you, you got to treat them very, very gently, very carefully. Uh, I'll give you a little background. Like Porgra, uh, they started working there. I think Placer started drilling in 1976. It was something like, I think, 1987 when they finally... The, the picture kind of congealed. It took them like 10 years of pretty intensive drilling. Well, uh-huh. look at Tuvati. I mean, that's where Wally is at right now. They've been working there for nearly 10 years. Uh, there was some work on the property by Emperor Mines prior to that. But really, it's it's starting to come together, starting to crystallize. So, um, you know, because I, I've watched it and because I, I got to know Wally early last year, I, I decided to, to help. It's also an easy stop for me on the way down to Australia. In fact, I, I find it a joy because I can adjust to the time zone a little easier as I stop. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a system I know. It's a system I, I really like working with. You know, I talked to Wally about my vision, you know, as far as it being an alkaline gold system. It's a little different than uh, many people view it. You know, they were thinking, oh, this is an epithermal deposit. It'll, you know, the grades will die out very quickly at depth, blah, blah, blah. It's not true. These things go down, you know, hundreds and hundreds of meters, probably go down a kilometer or two easily into the crust. Mm-hmm. You know, so the potential here is huge. You know, already, you know, like Hamish just said, the thing is, say, 350 meters uh, vertical profile on average. And the the system has a million ounces. So, you know, it's already got like 2,500 to 3,000 ounces per vertical meter, which is very robust for a, a deposit, you know. So um, it's easy to see that the, the system should carry on at depth. We can easily add ounces below the existing drilling. Uh, but now, you know, one of the key key things we've done is we've, you know, through consolidating the property, we've been able to start exploring the bigger caldera system. And we did bleg work. Uh, you know, if anybody wants to, you know, get in de- details about bleg sampling, the stream sediment sampling, but we had a news release back in November about that. Uh, it, it just lights up. You know, you can see gold coming out of multiple drainages in this caldera, you know, comparable or better than, than coming off the Tuvatu drainage. So, in my view, uh, there's a lot of upside here. The, the system is roughly the same scale, same kind of scope as any of these very large alkaline systems. And I see no reason it shouldn't host a much, much larger gold system. I'm hoping that we'll find something on the order of at least 10 million ounces. Um. I did, first, I, as I understand it, the, the company is drilling four drill holes beneath the uh, existing deposit. Yeah, uh, look, first, yeah. <laughs> things things evolve. Uh, you know, uh-huh. that's where we started uh, back in September when we kind of first announced we were going to, you know, undertake this program. I, I brought Wally to Cripple Creek actually, and we we went on a tour. I have some friends at Newmont who showed us the 3D model for the deposit, and you know, showed how how extensive the veins go. And I think Wally was impressed by that, so he agreed to, to a four-hole commitment, you know, four deep holes. But, look, the gold market's starting to pick up. Uh, our share price has done well. We've just completed a raise about six or seven weeks ago for uh, uh, $11.5 million. Um, we now have a lot more horsepower, uh, so we're looking at, at expanding that. Um, 
I would say, you know, we'll be drilling holes, deep deep holes on an ongoing basis. It's not as though we're going to stop at four anymore. I think we're, we're looking at a, a more robust program, and we're also looking at these new targets. Uh, we've done, like I said, the blade work that just uh-huh. left up the, the place. You know, it's like, wow, you, you can't, you probably can't swing a drill without hitting something in some of the drainages. <laughs> And then uh, the other thing is we've done some geophysics, which we haven't haven't uh, gotten together yet, but we'll have it together very shortly. And that'll show, you know, there's a lot of structural uh, evidence that the system's, uh, pro, you know, very prolific at depth. So we got a heck of a lot of targets to test. You know, this is one of those things I see, you know, a very hot story, very very good story to tell in an uptick in gold market. Mm-hmm. High grade, I mean, good grief. How many... How many major companies, uh, you know, have high-grade deposits like this? And it's very hard to find these things. You know, they're, you know, like every single major mining company has an alkaline gold system. Jay, okay, Newmont has Purple Creek, Newcrest has, you know, Lahir, uh, Barrick has Porgrub. You know, but these things they're scarce. And when you find one, they tend to be high-grade, tend to be prolific, and they are very, very highly sought after. Yeah, and so here you have a company with 155 million market cap U.S. money that has this. And and let me ask you, Quentin, I, I presume then what you saw in that first drill hole that's been reported underneath the old uh, the existing deposit, you saw what you liked and, and what you I, saw there I, points okay. in the right direction? Yeah, I, I see that we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to hit this hard. Okay, yeah. what I saw in the lowest intercept, this is the one that was a little over four meters of a little over an ounce per ton, Mm-hmm. The, the style of mineralization was different than what you see up higher. It showed a lot of uh, brecciation, which is basically broken rock, okay, that's mm-hmm. been been healed by, uh, you know, hydrothermal fluids that have brought up other minerals and kind of cemented everything together, including gold, okay. Um, what I see, though, is that that is strong evidence of, uh, you know, an overpressurization event uh, below that level. And what that means is that, you know, the volcano, the, the basically the magma down at depth, uh, released, uh, you know, a, a upwelling fluid that had a lot of gold in it, and I think from that point below, we're going to see some very high grades and hopefully very good continuity. The thing is kind of forming a trunk, so to speak, and that's what I saw at, at uh, Fosterville when I first went up there. Is you know, the the, the stock work and the, the intensity of things was really picking up, and uh, you know, I'm hoping it's a completely different system, but you know, it's similar, you know, formational process. So. I think this thing's going to pick up with depth. All right. Uh, Hamish, before before we conclude this, I would like to ask you, when might we start to see, uh, or when might we see some more drill results coming out? The first one was released. Uh, when might we expect to see some more results? Well, we've got, we've got results from the second hole pending, and uh, those will be augmented um, shortly by um, uh, the, the CSEMT results. That's the geophysics. So, that's likely to uh, to to uh, illustrate where we like to drill next um, in the Caldera to the north of Tuvatu. But uh, certainly, we're we're awaiting uh, results from the second drill hole in Clinton's program, a uh, depth below the existing resource at Tuvatu. So that's exciting. Let yeah. me let me let me catch up. Just look, we're still yeah. drilling that second hole. Okay, it's about six hundred meters. Okay, They're on holiday break, and there was a bit of a cyclone last week. They've, you know, I, I believe they've started drilling again. Okay, they'll finish that hole. Uh, what Hamish is saying is that we've already, you know, started to assay some of the upper part of it. So we'll, okay. we'll probably have some news on that. 
but you know, this is going to be a developing story. We're looking at beefing up the drill program, maybe additional rigs in two to three months, things like that. All right. So within the next month or so, we might see some results. Is that likely? That's wood. Yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. Very good. Well, we'll have to leave it go with that. Thank you, both of you, yep. uh, for helping our listeners understand this very exciting story. I, I hope we can have you back again when you have some more news to talk about. So thanks so much for being with us. All right, folks, we do have to go to break now, but don't go away. Alistair McLeod will be with us to talk about why he's concerned about the bond markets and what that may mean for gold. Very bullish story on gold. Uh, Alistair will explain why he thinks that's the case. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Alistair McLeod. Great Bear Resources, trading under GBR on the TSX and GTBDF on the OTCQX, is a gold exploration company focused on their 23-kilometer, wholly-owned Dixie project in the prolific Red Lake Mining District. Having recently made multiple high-grade gold discoveries, GBR is fully funded to complete their very active 90,000-meter drill program through next year. Considered one of the best-performing exploration stocks in the last two years, GBR aims to release a maiden resource in early 2020. To stay up to date, visit greatbearresources.ca. TriStar Gold is a gold exploration and development company listed on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol TSG and on the OTCQB under the symbol TSGZF. The large and growing gold resource at Castelo de Sanos Project is located in mining-friendly Pata State, Brazil. A recent $8 million investment from major mining company Royal Gold will advance the CDS project towards a feasibility study in 2020. TriStar Gold enjoys strong institutional shareholder support from groups like Gold 2000, RBC, Sun Valley, and U.S. Global. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Alistair McLeod. He is a senior fellow at Gold Money Foundation and head of research at Gold Money, and his weekly essays are posted at goldmoney.com. They are a must-read if you really want to understand not only what is happening, but why it's happening, the underlying dynamics that make it happen. And that's important, I think, because if you understand... Uh, economics, and I think largely from a Austrian point of view, which is what Alistair pretty much employs in his think process, in his thought process. I think it can help you better understand what is likely to head your way in the future. So, uh, thank you for joining me again, Alistair. That's my pleasure, Jay. It's always good to talk to you. Um, and I want to ask you primarily. I would like to focus on an article you wrote on the twenty-sixth of December: bond worries and gold. I would also want to get into what you think uh, is in store for gold this year as well, because you've written about that, uh, your first piece in the new year. Um, in your introductory remarks on your, uh, in your December 26th piece, you wrote, um, 
uh, you stated that uh, the one that talks about bond worries. Um, you, you talked about um, the tech. I'd like to before we get into that. I'd like to just mention um, before we get into your views on that article. I'd like to just mention that Michael Oliver seems to reflect your views pretty much in terms of the. Uh, the direction of some of the key markets. Michael is really looking, his his technical analysis is suggesting uh, that we have turned the corner in a bear market, to, uh, into a bear market for the dollar and a, into a bull market for commodities in general. He's very bullish on, uh, he's very bullish on, uh, on gold and, and silver. Uh, but he comes at it from a different vantage point. I think it's always interesting when you have people that see things alike, but from a different perspective. Um, but in reading your December 26th piece, it seems that you are addressing two areas of, of concern. One is liquidity concerns in the dollar-based global monetary system, and the other is a lack of foreign buyers in U.S. Treasuries to fund what is a growing deficit. The United States uh, projected to, I don't know, anywhere from a, mil- tr- a trillion to one and a half trillion dollars a year need to be funded. That is new funding needs of the Treasury. So I'd like to start out by asking you, maybe address some of the liquidity concerns that you talked about in your article. And as I understand it, they're sort of related to uh, what are deemed to be systematically important banks and Basel III uh, requirements. Could you, could you get into your concerns about liquidity? Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, this is manifest, really, Jay, with uh, the repo market in America, which uh, we can see continues to be extremely tight. And I think I'm right in saying that um, either yesterday or today, um, there's something like uh, bids for repos of another $90 billion or something. I mean, there's huge, huge amounts needing to be rolled over. And of course, we're now in the new year. And originally, the thought was that the repo crisis was a year-end problem and it would disappear after the year-end. It's still with us. And it's telling us that the uh, globally, uh, global systemically important banks, the GSIBs, uh, which have to have um, enough reserves to cover uh, 30 days commitments going forward, they're running into problems. And the problems basically are that they're trying to finance two things. They're trying to finance um, uh, the requirements, if you like, for uh, an economy uh, in terms of bank credit. And at the same time, they're trying to finance hedge fund speculation, which basically is shorting um, the uh, the yen or and the euro in order to buy the dollar it, so that uh, the hedge fund picks up the interest rate differential. So, um, you know, it's all sort of ended up with a bit of a crisis. Now, the way it obviously gets unwound is um, less bank lending. Uh, and uh, whether it's less bank lending to um, uh, domestic U.S. corporations or whether it's less bank lending to the speculators and the hedge funds, we have yet to see. Certainly, if it happens that it's less um, uh, uh, lending, less um, availability through the through uh, the repo market, because the hedge funds use the repo market as well for their activities, then that does lead to a tendency to uh, sell the dollar and close their positions against euros and and, and yen. So I think Mike Oliver's point about a weakening dollar, um, you can see on the chart, there is a loss of momentum, certainly in the dollar. And uh, that could develop further if this liquidity crisis continues, which it seems to me it will. So the repo market is settled down now, I guess I take it from the uh, at the at this point in time, right? Does it seem like it's uh, things have settled no, down? No. 
No, no, it hasn't. It hasn't. This oh, is hasn't. the point. Originally, they were saying, everybody was saying that there's a year-end liquidity problem. Uh, and yet the year-end has passed. And now we've still got a repo problem. There's a shortage uh, of, uh, of liquidity in the system. And the level of repos is still running at a very, very high level. All right. So that's not very assuring um, to... Um uh, to the Federal Reserve and other and other central banks, I suppose, because they've been shoveling lots of money into the system and it's still not not fixing the problem, apparently. Well, that is correct. And uh, when you bear in mind the massive explosion of the quantity of bank reserves following the Lehman crisis, I mean, here we are, admittedly, 10 or 11 years later, but you would think that there's so much liquidity in the system that this problem shouldn't arise. Yet it does. All right. Um so we move on to the other issue, the major issue that you have, and that is even if even if that was resolved, and it's not, you're telling us, even if that was resolved, you have a bigger issue or, say, a longer-lasting issue, and that is how does the U.S., how on earth at current interest rates does the United States finance one to one and a half trillion dollars of new borrowing needs every year? Absolutely. The problem, basically, uh, we can frame it like this. Uh, normally, a government which runs a deficit uh, would issue bonds, and those bonds, if they are issued on a non-inflationary basis, uh, should be bought by savers. In other words, there should be savings in the system sufficient to pick up those bonds, to invest in those bonds. Now, obviously, it takes investment away from uh, the commercial sector, but uh, nonetheless, on a non-inflationary uh, basis, that is what you need. We do not have that. In America and also in the UK, the level of savings is actually derisory. And uh, most consumers don't save anymore. If anything, they uh, draw down on credit. So we don't have the savings. So what has America been doing? Well, for the last 20 years, every year there has been a budget deficit. It has been matched broadly, uh, which uh, the theory says should be the case, with a uh, trade deficit. And uh, the uh, surplus dollars that end up in the hands of the Chinese, the Japanese, and uh, the Germans, and everybody else, all those surplus funds uh, should be reinvested back in uh, America. Now, that way, uh, you have a stable dollar, and the US uh, uh, Treasury finds that it's, it's, it has funding. The origin of that expansion, if you like, of, 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 of money that ends up abroad uh, is, is itself inflationary. But it is less inflationary, perhaps, than a situation where the Fed uh, just prints the money and gives it to the government, which is more or less what quantitative easing is doing. Quantitative mm -hmm. easing also has the advantage of, um, uh, you know, injecting uh, capital into the banks in the form of reserves. So you kill two birds with one stone. You fund the government and you fund the banks. Um, but it's all inflation. And this is now what is happening. I mean, repos or QE, it really doesn't matter. What's happening is that the Fed is having to pump money into the system to stop it falling over. Now, the foreigners, basically, uh, because uh, uh, global trade is now contracting partly as a result of the credit cycle turning and partly as a result of the tariff um, uh, war between America and China, mm -hmm. uh, you, can, you can see that the funds are not going to get recycled to finance that increasing budget deficit. 
I mean, the, the Congressional Budget uh, Office reckons that this current fiscal year deficit will be over a trillion. If I am right and we are heading into a global recession, the effect on the American economy is likely to drive uh, that deficit, that budget deficit, up to the other figure you mentioned in mm -hmm. your um, uh, preamble of right. one and a half trillion. So, right. you know, this is the problem. It's all going to be done on printed money or printed credit from the banks one way or the other. Yeah, well, and, and uh, we've gotten used to that. So a lot of people are saying, what's the big deal, Alistair? What's what's the problem? I mean, we, you know, for the longest time, it's been said that um, we've been able to live beyond our means, Americans have, because of the kindness of strangers. That is, foreigners are, you know, been willing to buy our treasuries. Uh, so I think you touched on some of the issues of foreign trade, um, the, tra the tariffs and that sort of thing, sort of reducing trade and so the flow of dollars back into treasuries. Are there some geopolitical issues too, though, it seems that might be in play, as well as the funding needs of, well, the biggest creditor nation was China. Can you comment on some of those issues, those dynamics that may be coming into play that are going to make it more difficult? I mean, I saw that somewhere, uh, I think in your article you mentioned August of last year, I think I saw since September uh, up until the, the last uh, the last months of, of 2019, that 90% of additional U.S. Treasury borrowings were financed by the Fed. Uh, so, uh, where, so where does that leave us? I mean, I, I, what are the geopolitical issues that may be coming into play uh, that make this, uh, you know, causing a tectonic shift here uh, yeah. in the global markets? Well, we have the problem, um, if you like, even before we consider geopolitical issues, um, because the key the key point is that uh, with a contracting economy, uh, people do not need to own so many dollars. And I'll just give you mm -hmm. some figures which which will put in into context. Uh, foreign ownership of assets in U.S. dollars and in America, a total around about $24 trillion, hmm. of which about $3.5 trillion is uh, deposit money in the corresponding banking system. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Americans' investment in foreign um, uh, 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 jurisdictions, mm -hmm. their investments total around about $11.5 trillion. Now, that's a mm -hmm. lot less than the $23, 24000000000000 trillion that mm -hmm. the foreigners own in in. U.S. dollars, one way or the other. Mm. Now, if you if you look at um, uh, the bulk of uh, um, that investment abroad, the liquidity side of it is actually in dollars. In other words, this is a situation where Americans will lend money, say, to Malaysia, um, but it'll be a dollar loan. Um, so, you know, there's no currency um, uh, situation as far as the Americans are concerned. There's mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, a sort of, if you like, a loan risk. The total amount, looking at the tick figures, the total amount of foreign obligations denominated in foreign currencies is only $92, trillion, $92 billion. Billion dollars, yeah. Yeah, billion dollars. That compares with the foreigners having three and a half to four uh, trillion dollars of, of, of dollars. So, you know, when the global economy slows and money starts to go back to home, guess what's going to happen? The dollar's going to go down. So, um, coming back to, to your basic question, and that mm -hmm. is the geopolitics, uh, the Chinese have uh, played a game, I think, of not being provoked. They have made some very bad mistakes. I think they made a very bad mistake over Hong Kong. 
um, mm -hmm. you know, really they had no need to try and introduce uh, uh, those extradition laws and give the Americans the excuse to mm -hmm. attack the lack of democracy in China. Uh, so, yes, they have made mistakes, but by and large, their approach on this is not to rock the boat and just let the American dollar hang itself. Uh, the Russians, I think, are probably more aggressive. You can see that in their reserve policy. They basically ditch every dollar they get and turn yeah. it into physical gold. Um, the Chinese, um, you know, they sort of tinker around the edges a little bit, you know, maybe giving a little bit of a signal here, a little, little bit of a signal there. But really, they're not going to be, be provoked. Now, having said that, we've got a new situation in the Middle East, which I think is very, very disturbing. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that um, this could draw in uh, wider, uh, uh, into a wider conflict, particularly involving Israel, Hezbollah. Um, Russia has, has got great interest in the area as well. Uh, China, again, is tending to sort of, you know, she will work with Russia through the UN, but she won't do very much more. So really what we have until further notice is a situation where the dollar is killing itself. It's not the foreigners killing the dollar. Yeah. Uh, so it seems to me that um, what you're suggesting here then is that the Fed, if, if, if I mean, if the Fed has to print all the money, <clears throat> the Fed has to keep printing in order to finance the U.S. deficit, there's going to be a, conf a loss of confidence somewhere in the markets and the financial markets are going to start to see uh, what is really going on, and they're not going to want to hold, hold uh, dollars anymore. They're not going to hold treasuries, I guess. And, yes, and, I and, and then if you, if you continue to drive interest rates lower, and Mr. Bernanke yesterday was weighing in with his notion that we should actually go into negative uh, negative rates, and you had pointed out on this show before what that would mean for the world's reserve currency, very bearish for the world's reserve currency because of this, this whole notion of uh, time preference. Uh, so those dynamics seem to be very much in, in order. I mean, if the Fed had to come in and buy 90% of our treasuries since September, it means they had to do that in order to keep interest rates uh, suppressed so that the whole thing wouldn't fall apart, right? Well, I think I think more importantly, they have to do it to keep the U.S. government funded. That's that's uh -huh. the real problem. Uh -huh. But get, getting back to to um, you know the basic theme of, of of what you were saying, I think that this year is the year when uh, the um, frailty of uh, the fiat money system is going to be uh, exposed to the markets. I mean, we're already seeing this in the gold price. I mean, the, 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 the action in uh, COMEX is really quite extraordinary. I mean, we've got uh, open interest has rocketed up to nearly 800,000 contracts. The highest we ever had it before was 630,000 contracts. Mm. And that was regarded as extreme. I mean, you know, if you were getting over 500,000 contracts not too long ago, that was a pretty over bought market. Now we're at 800,000. We must not forget that each contract has a short and a long. So if there are 800,000 contracts outstanding, then that is uh, roughly 2,500 tons of short positions. There are also long positions against it as well. But to me, one of the great clues um, in the last quarter of last year uh, was uh, in at the very end of, uh, of November, when the December contract was rolling off the board, uh, there was one day where there was a switch 
from um, the December contract into the next uh, uh, active contract of 110,000 contracts. I've never seen Mm. such a large single day movement. And, you know, until that happened, I thought, my goodness, we're sitting on a precipice here. But there's obviously there's a whale in there with a huge, great position. Now, Mm -hmm. that whale does not have a a, a position which um, presumably uh, uh, approximates to 10 million ounces. Um, You know, that is something you do not do unless you have some very, very good information or you are absolutely confident in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, this was happening basically uh, just as the repo business was beginning to go wrong. Now, that mm-hmm. tells me that, that there are players in the market, insiders who really do understand what's happening. And the reason that um, the bullion banks haven't bashed the market back to try and shake out um, you know, speculators as stop losses get triggered and all the rest of it is you know, the buyer is in there absorbing anything on any dip. And sure enough, I mean, it was okay. We had this uh, Iranian thing um, uh, over last weekend, uh, which drove the price up briefly to 1580 or 1590 or something. Mm-hmm. But even with if that had not happened, the way the gold market was going, it was telling us that there's something very, very wrong in the fiat currency world. Um, and uh, I see this. I see this continuing. And uh, I would sum it up by saying 2020 is going to be a year of discovery. For those who think that uh, fiat currencies are all tickety-boo and it's all going to be wonderful. Well, Alistair, that's a lot of gold and a lot of paper gold contracts. Um, If people start to demand delivery, what's going to happen to the gold market? Well, I, I'm not sure they'll start um, demanding delivery. I think we're we're, we're looking at um, hedge funds. We're looking at very very big dealers in paper, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I think I think they'll just roll their positions as long as they as as long as they wish. Uh, mm-hmm. They'll probably wind it down at some stage during the year. But I think the whole thing is changing so rapidly, uh, and uh, th- there is a growing appreciation, I think, in the investing public that there is something wrong with the dollar. And if the dollar starts going down, as the technical analysis suggests, Mm -hmm. then I can see real blood in the streets. The other aspect of this, which we haven't touched on at all, of course, is what happens to bond yields. Mm -hmm. I think bond yields are going to rise this year, and I can easily see the 10-year government bond yield rising to over 3, 4, possibly even 5%. if If that happens, then basically U.S. government finances are screwed. Yeah, well, indeed. I mean, uh, the Powell pivot took place when rates were were rising below. I don't know. I don't think the tenure got to four percent, or did it? I don't think so. So, I mean, then you know, the market, the equity market, started having real problems before uh, tons of money was tum- bumped in there, pumped in there by uh, uh, by Mr. Powell. So, Alistair, with just about a minute and a half left, uh, you wrote an article, "Gold's Outlook for 2020." I think you just touched on it. But could you give us a real quick summary of what that article is? And then people, of course, can go to Gold Money and read the entire article. Yes, it's all about the effect of inflation on fiat currencies, particularly the dollar, and the way the dollar is going to get hit, if you like, in terms of its purchasing power. I think 2020 is the year when this really becomes very, very obvious. The other thing I did in that article is a lot of people tell me that higher interest rates are bad for gold. I illustrate in that article why higher interest rates are not bad for gold. Mm -hmm. And I particularly focus on a situation which I think is very similar to the one we face now. And that is what we faced in the UK 
between 1970 and 1974, when uh, bond yields on uh, uh, on the long end rose from something like 7% to, I can't remember offhand, but it's something like 11 or 12%. And at the same time, gold rose from £14 to £80. Mm-hmm. Um, are, are uh, higher bond yields bad for gold? No, they are not. No. Well, and, <laughs> indeed, mean, again, another issue where you and Michael Oliver are in agreement with uh, on, and that is the potential for rising uh, treasury rate markets this year. We'll have to leave it go at that, Alistair. Thank you so much for being with us. It's always a pleasure. And uh, people just go to goldmoney.com to read Alistair's weekly essays there. They're very, very important and very insightful in helping you understand what's really going on in the uh, in the financial markets. Thank you so much, Alistair. Well, folks, that is all the time we have this week. Next week, we're going to have David Rosenberg with us. That's uh, he, Some people call him Canada's most famous economist. And also, I'll be introducing uh, Sitka Gold Corp. It's a new sponsor to this show and a company that I'm very, very bullish on and one that I have purchased shares in uh, for myself and also have recommended in our newsletter. So that is all for this week. Uh, until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Lion One Metals, one of 2019's top performing gold stocks, is geared for aggressive growth in 2020. With drilling already underway and its fully permitted high-grade Tuvatu Gold Project in Fiji, one of the last high-grade gold deposits of its kind anywhere in the world, now owned by a major gold mining company, Lion One trades in the USA on the OTCQX under the symbol LOMLF and in Canada under LIO on the TSXV. To learn more about Lion One's world-class high-grade gold potential in Fiji, go to liononemetals.com. 